Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Welcome in to another edition of Rick and Bubba University, the podcast. And Bubba, I know that when you and I started uh, hearing the story that is Dan Parker uh, on, on the big show, we were completely blown away by it. Well, Rick, when you uh, when you talk about breaking speed records mm. in, in excess of 200 miles an hour, uh, that's one thing. And then when you throw in the fact that, that he cannot see, yes, that really adds some interest to this story, doesn't it? It, it really does. So let's, let's welcome Dan Parker uh, to Rick and Bubba University, the podcast. Dan, thank you for taking time to be with us. Thank you so much. I appreciate the invite. I'm glad that y'all uh, got a hold of my story. Well, and, and what a story it is. So, so let's uh, let's walk through it. Um, so, you've always had an interest uh, in um, racing things with machines. You know, looking over your bio and everything. You said you, you were drawn to to something, but the 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 sports that have balls and sticks and hoops and <laughs> that that just that that just never. You, you didn't feel like you were you were gifted for that type of sport. No, that was not my forte. I sucked at sticking ball sports, but I was attracted to anything mechanical, skateboards, mini bikes, bicycles. That's just, you know, from an early age, that's all I was interested in. Well, so you were drawn to this. So so when did you actually start dabbling? Uh, you, I, know it said, I know you said you worked at bike shops. Did you just any way you could get near the stuff you would? Well, I'm a second-generation racer. My father, Jimmy, raced um just until last year in his late 70s and so at an early age you know I, we grew up at the drag strip and uh at eight years old they had an all motorcycle race at phoenix city our local track he entered me in the mini bike class and i came in second place so from then on you know between bicycles and mini bikes and once i graduated high school i started bracket racing cars on a regular weekly basis so you were hooked yes <laughs> Dan, tell us uh, when you when you start this kind of career, h- how do you how do you make a living? Uh, how do you because I know it's a, it's expensive the equipment and the shop to keep these things running. H- how when you first enter into this does someone earn a living and keep it moving? Well, you're not going to make a living for the most part drag racing, um, but Dad taught me how to do the most with the least. You know. Uh, Bracket racing, it's all about consistency. So not having the biggest horsepower, but just having the most consistent car. But he taught me how to make efficient race cars, and that paid off later down the road. But in the 90s, I got an opportunity to drive what's called a pro-modified car. They're the fastest cars with the door on them because I couldn't afford one. These are very expensive cars. But luckily, with my talent as a driver, I was able to secure driving jobs and um, – so I had the best of both worlds. I, I drove, but I wasn't financially responsible for the cars. 
Well, looking at, at, at you starting out, and then, of course, in 97, you, you got your own chassis business, and you were building and designing cars, and you did that for people, what, everywhere, it says, I mean, here and even in Canada. So um, so, so that, that had to help. Uh, but then in 2005, you won the ADRL, American Drag Racing League. Um, uh, this, this was the world championship. At that point, did you feel like it's happening, I'm at the top of my game? Yes, you know, because at that, that time the ADRL was the the biggest sanction there was for pro-modified cars, and we won the world championship in 05 and 08. We run it up to Billy Harper, Valdosta, and in the finals we were the first side-by-side three-second pass in pro-nitrous history. So that meant both cars ran under 4.00. I think Billy went 393 and I went 399. Um and that was just unheard of at the time. And um, so that was basically zero to 190 in four seconds, zero to 75 wow. in one second. <laughs> Good night. That's some G's right there, isn't it? Yeah. It's all about 3.2 G's of acceleration off start line. Wow. So so you you obviously had were drawn to this. You were gifted at it, which uh, is obvious. Uh, you found ways to, to, to make a living at it and and now you've won uh, you know the world championship and and everything is 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 rolling right along and and then March 31st 2012 and I really did not know until we were getting ready for this podcast I, I I'm familiar with your story but I had no idea that that this happened in Steele Alabama Bubba and I in the early days of the show yeah uh, we did several events out we there. did promotions yeah. in yeah. Steele Alabama when Mr. Lucky, the world's greatest garage band, was on tour. We played a concert there on the back of a flatbed truck. Yeah, we were. <laughs> we, we, we were the we were the only. Well, our, you know, that was when we used the. Our, you know, you know how you always look for some motto or some slogan, and we were Mr. Lucky. We're louder than a drag car, you know, yes. and all that. Mm-hmm. So, so we've been to this track uh, many times, but um, I, I know I know you've had to tell this story a lot, and and you know with. Uh, knowing uh, my wife when she went on her book tour and everything, when you have to tell a, a, a rough, tragic story over and over again, it can be exhausting. But for the podcast, why don't you, why don't you take us back um, to March 31st, 2012, when your life drastically changed? Okay, we were – so I drove for Bill George. I drove for Bill since 1999, and we were testing a brand-new engine combination. It was 864 cubic inches you know, five stages of nitrous oxide. I have no memory of the day of the wreck, but going by where everybody told me. So the first two passes were half track, shut off passes. Everything was good. We decided to qualify for the race and there was a storm coming in. And so I guess we got to the front of the qualifying line and we were the second or third pair out. So on the first full pass, right at the finish line, the car made a hard right turn from the left lane, mm. hit the concrete wall, started flipping and tumbling, and just ripped the car apart. There was nothing from my feet forward. No motor, transmission, firewall, dash, steering column. Everything was gone. Um, it knocked me out. The EMTs got there, and they, they got me out of the car, and they called Lifelight. They was going to helicopter me out of there. I was in such bad shape. I had broke lung, broke ribs, collapsed lungs. This whole right arm was just completely destroyed. And there was a storm in between UAB and University of Alabama Hospital in Birmingham and the racetrack. So the helicopter couldn't come. So they put my girlfriend, 
Jennifer riding shotgun and ambulance and loaded me up for the 45 minute ride mm. to UAB. And they did something I never heard of before. They, they actually called ahead and had another ambulance meet mine on the side of the highway so that EMT could get in my ambulance to help my EMT keep me alive. So there's two of them in the back keeping me alive while Jennifer's riding shotgun witnessing mm. all this. They, you know, obviously admitted me to the hospital emergency situation. And hours later, the doctors come out and uh, told Bill and Jennifer and the race team and everybody that gathered at that point that they might as well just go home. Uh, it was going to be a long road ahead. I was, they were going to induce me in a coma. They'd done MRIs and, you know, they had a long road ahead to get me put back together, but just, you know, prepare for a battle. And so Jennifer and the team, everybody came home. Jennifer got her clothes and, you know, took care of our animals, people to take board our animals and uh, went back the next day. And the right arm was giving them fits. I had an infection set in, mm. had to do a skin graft site, my armpit. And I was in a coma for two weeks. When they brought me out of the coma, I would be laying in the hospital bed and Gigi, my sister, or Jennifer would walk up and they'd say something and it would scare me because I didn't see them. Mm. And they noticed that my pupils weren't constricting. And um, they called the doctor the next day. The doctors come in and gave me an eye exam and told me that my optic nerve had been compressed, my brain swole, and I'm 100% blind for life. For life. They didn't give you any any hope that it was going get, to get, get better. That's it. Ball game. Well, that, that had to be devastating. Uh, dealing oh, with yeah. the injuries already, how how did that? How, well, how, how did you take that? I mean, obviously, you, it's going to be very difficult. But how how did you initially deal with that? To say it was a gut punch would be an understatement. So at that point, you know, I knew that everything I knew in my world was over with. You know, I, I lost at one moment. I lost my business, way to make a living. Um, more likely, I'd lose my house. You know. Financially, just everything was over with. So I, I told Jennifer, because we've been dating a little over a year, and she had just moved in with me. I said, she's from the Birmingham area. She worked for Steve Johnson Pro Stop Motorcycle in Birmingham. And uh, I told her, I said, my exact words were, go home, just get whatever you want out of the house, move back to Birmingham, and forget about me. I said, I ruined my life. Don't ruin yours by trying to do the right thing by me. And she wouldn't have it. And um so we had to spend another two weeks at UA between a step-down room and a rehab uh, facility. So I was UAB a total of a month before I got to come home and uh, had to face my new world of darkness, you know, 100% blind. Uh, so I, 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 I don't want to belabor the point, because, but these moments in life are, are fascinating. And, and I really just am trying to do those things you just listed, do they immediately come into your mind uh, now I want I, the, the way I make a living is over. I'm going to lose my house. Do, yeah. do those things literally start popping into your mind the minute you hear that in that, in that instant? Yeah, because it, it, in one moment, you know, that everything that you knew the last time you were awake is gone. You know, it, it you know, I never would want to be a financial burden to anybody. And at that moment I knew, Everything as I knew it was gone. Yes. Mike, let, let me ask you, do we need a break? Yeah, here, let's Rick? take let's a break. Let's take right? a break. Yeah. Mike, I, I want to go back yeah. and ask you about the car itself okay. in the wreck. 
this is the fascinating story, and uh, and we're going to continue to unpack it uh, uh, when we come back. So so stay close. More with with Dan Parker on this edition of Rick and Bubba University, the podcast. So we're spending time with Dan Parker. Uh, his his story is he was drawn to anything mechanical. He found his way into drag racing, became a world champion. Uh, and, and, and while they were working out some cars in, in Still, Alabama, at the drag strip, he had a devastating crash. Uh, he has uh, awakened from a medically-induced coma to discover that he's lost his eyesight. It sounds, Dan, like you, you obviously you were lucky to survive that crash yeah. at all. Um, let me ask you about the car. I know these cars are built to be as safe as possible. But you said the car took a hard right hand turn uh, as you were going down the uh, the drag strip. Do, do you know what went wrong with the car? Uh, why it did that? Or or then in the crash, is it just too much power? There's just no way to protect you with the roll cages and everything. We don't know, you know, whether maybe the car in front of me dropped some oil or something and lost traction. Nothing. From the post-crash analysis, the car owner took the car home, and for what we could tell, nothing broke. You know, but we were always 100% safety conscious. And Bill, you know, we had everything there was humanly possible and required for safety, and that's the only reason I lived. There, there's been wreck, wrecks far lesser than mine, and they did not come home. Right. And um, I had head containment pieces in the roll cage. I had a Hans device on good seat belts, uh, you know, 15 layer fire suit, you know, gloves, shoes, you know, I had everything there was, you know, containment on the diaper for the motor, the transmission. But when all that's just breaking apart, uh, cause the car just went to tumbling and the motor was actually a hundred feet from where the car came to rest. And, um, you know, so it was just so violent once it went over that wall, went to tumbling in the grass, it just literally broke apart. So, you know, one seventy-five. We think you, you, the, you, the crash started yeah. at one hundred and seventy-five miles an hour. Yes, I went to the finish line. Went four hundred seven, one hundred and seventy-five. The pictures show right as I went to the finish line, the cars crossed up, and I had pulled the parachute. I guess I knew I was in trouble. Okay. And I pulled the parachute. It barely missed the car in the right lane. I came behind him, and I hit the poured concrete wall, tore section it down. Then it went over the wall, went to flipping, and you know because that energy has to burn off somewhere. Uh, and and in your case, it just kept the car flipping. Yes. So again, these are just things that I you you've already said it, but I want I want to just go there a minute. You don't remember not not only do you not remember the wreck, you don't remember that day at all. I don't remember the day. I remember a little bit of the day before, but I have no memory. So of the, the day is completely day wiped away. It, it, you, no. So you don't you don't remember how it felt you don't know so you really can bring nothing to the conversation of hey what happened because you can't remember yeah. it. Um, it's almost like that's the way you're you're being protected yeah. from yeah, the your trauma. Your body kind of kind of goes back yeah, erases yeah. the tape, doesn't it? it, it uh, does. Yeah, your brain your brain tries to protect you from it, you know, to a certain aspect, and so it's erased that memory. Yeah. So Dan, you you're now faced with uh, many many physical injuries. Uh, you, you've lost your vision. I can't imagine the amount of surgeries you had to go through and rehab and yes. medicines and doctor's visits that the next year or so 
was in front of you? So my right arm was stuck straight because I had to completely re reconstruct it. Um, I had a skin graft site in my armpit. The, the arm was stuck straight for six months. When I came home, I couldn't even move my fingers, much less I couldn't bust an egg if I had to. Um, with my arm in straight, I couldn't even wash my left armpit. I had to do a, a rag like that to wash my armpit. And um, so I generally had to go to back therapy once a week, hand therapy once a week. At about the six-month point, uh, I had a second surgery just to reshape the elbow to allow it to move. But by that time, the elbow was stuck straight. So my, my insurance ran out of physical therapy. So you may be loaning me a machine that I would lay in bed and I would strap my arm in this machine and it would make my arm bend. And when I could take the point, the pain to a certain point, I could dial it in to, to move more and more travel. I would sleep every day from about noon to five with that machine and every night, every other night, uh, all night with that machine going because I knew if I didn't go through the pain and the physical therapy up front, I would baby that arm and I'd never be able to use it. So still today, all the nerves are messed up in that arm because the, the nerves on your thumb, your index finger, and your middle finger are on one side of your elbow. So when I squeeze my thumb, my index finger stings and feels like it's expanding. Um, just touching my fingers lightly feels like they're, you know, needles, you know, so all the nerves are still crossed up. I can use it and it hurts to make a fist even today, but it's not, you know, great pain, but it hurts. And it's a struggle. I have to really struggle to make a fist but uh the average person they see me they don't realize how bad the arm is and to the extent it is but it was so i had a crushed vertebrae in my lower back a chip in my neck broke ribs multiple spots with stitches um my left ankle was messed up i think i was imagine i was trying to push the clutch in when it hit the wall so you know first thing in the morning i have to hobble around a little bit mm -hmm. so it gets warmed up you know before i get moving some but uh it, it was a lot of injuries on top of on top of a, the traumatic brain injury and the blindness, and the traumatic brain injury is far worse. The worst injury I've, I've went through. So Dan, during this, I know that you went through a period of being suicidal. Can you can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So you know, I, I being a designer, building race cars, I, I tell everybody I have an inventive mind. And that can be a blessing and a curse. You know, the blessing is I can design race cars and everything, but the curse is also I could come up with a way to, you know, commit suicide. When I came home from the hospital, mysteriously all my guns were gone. Yeah. Um, but I I knew that I didn't want to live. You know, I, I knew that I, I, I didn't want to live in that world that I was living in. So I basically come up with three ways. I was going to hang myself in the rafters in my upstairs shop zip tie my hands to myself and drown myself in my pond or logging trucks came by the house about every 30 minutes. But our driveway is about 300 feet long. And there's a big embankment as you go out the driveway and the mailbox was perfectly lined up for that embankment because I had to cut it out to get the big rigs in for the driveway. So I taught Jennifer, I asked Jennifer to teach me how to go on the embankment to check the mail. And I told her, I just, want to get a little exercise, walk up down the driveway and just be able to go get my own mail. Well, in the back of my head, I was going to walk in front of a logging truck. Mm. And, you know, that was my way out. That was where I was going to cash my own check. And about 
six months or so in, I was probably within about a week to commit suicide. And I went to bed one night thinking about my brother who passed away in 2009 and my mom who passed away just six months before the wreck. And Chris loved the Bonneville Salt Flats. He always told me a story about four guys from France. They designed and built a motorcycle that could be taken apart. They put in their luggage. They flew to the United States, rented a car, drove to Bonneville, put it together. And they each got a record. It was a 50cc small CC bike. But they each got a record with without sidecar. And uh, I went to bed one night thinking about Chris. And I woke up at 2 o'clock in the morning for the most vivid dream that I would build a bike and become the first blind man trace Bonneville. And I never went back to sleep. I woke up about two, never went back to sleep. And Jennifer woke up. And I told her what I wanted to do. And she said, okay. And that was a turning point that saved my life. So you, you had, you had to find something that was going to be a goal that you thought were, would be attainable. And, and, and you were going to find a way to do that, even though you lost your sight and start, start yeah, that working. gave me a purpose. That gave me a purpose, you know, uh, at that point, you know, I, I, I pushed myself, how to use my iPhone so I could network and do research. And it gave me a, my inventive mind, a pro, uh, you know, a problem to solve. You know, I don't know if y'all know who Smokey Eunuch is, but his wife, late stage of life, he, she gave him a, a picture frame with a quote, um, every man needs a problem to solve or he's out of the game. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I needed a problem to solve, and that gave me a purpose. Dan, you, I can only imagine mm-hmm. if I had been through the wreck that you had been through and trying to rehab, and I told my family that I was going to race again and do the very mm-hmm. thing that put <laughs> me in that position. Right. Suicide may not be the problem. Uh, they, may, they may push me in front of a logging truck. Uh, you, you have a very understanding group to stand behind you after all that. Well... A lot of it, but, you know, we've all heard the term that went over like a fart in church. (laughs) When I announced announced proudly that I was going to build a motorcycle. So it was a couple weeks later when a friend of mine donated the motorcycle to me. So when it showed up and I told everybody what I was going to do, it didn't go over too well. Okay. Well, uh, I started to say your your family must be way different. I'm kind of glad to uh, hear that, really. uh, (laughs) uh, People I thought were my best friends would go around town tell me I was stupid and all I was want to do was attention. And, um, it was a waste of time and everything else. But I just, I, I had a purpose and I kept my, my blinders on. I kept my head down. I, kept, I started working, you know, I didn't let the doubters distract me, you know, and I had plenty of them. I promise you I had plenty of them, but also had a lot of people that were absolute blessings that supported me. And at that point, you know, um, you could choose to go down, you know, the past neg- path of negativity or positivity and, and had a lot of people reach out to me and donate parts and time and uh, money. And so we built the motorcycle from scratch. I designed it, you know, in, in my head and, and had hands on part of building it. And uh, so I built the motorcycle and roughly 16, 18 months later, August of 2013, I became the first blind man to race Bonneville. So you, I mean, <laughs> How in the world? I mean, I mean, it, you, you, this, this came to you in a dream. It became your your purpose that turned you away from thinking about suicide. And and I certainly understand people who are concerned about you or whatever naysayers. But what you're saying is, this is what was going to keep me alive. I I'm, I was looking for purpose 
and I was looking for something that I could set as a goal, and that would be what would keep me alive. I mean, really, you're literally saying this is what's going to keep me alive. And, and so you go, and, and, and you become the first blind man to, to race on the motorcycles at Bonneville, and, and, and uh, how, how, did, how, did the, how was the bike designed for you to be able to do that? So when I first reached out to the Bub Motorcycle Speed Trials, they told me they wouldn't even consider letting me race unless I built a three-wheeler to take balance out of the equation. And at the very beginning, I reached out to Patrick Johnson from Huntsville. Um, we were friends before the wreck, and he's an engineer at Boeing Phantom Works. And I told Patrick, I asked him, I said, I told him what I wanted to do. I said, I need a guidance system, some kind of way that will tell me how to stay on course. Because at Bonneville, you, you just got to go straight, but for miles. And Patrick's exact words were, I can do that. If that's all you worry about, start building your bike. And so um, <laughs> at that point, I knew I could do it. You know, I didn't have permission I could do it. The motorcycle was 75% finished before I even had permission from, from the above <laughs> motorcycle speed trials that they were going to allow me to race. But I had to go through a whole process to prove to them how I could do it, everything else. And they told me, they said, you know, if it wasn't for my professionalism, my racing background, and everything else, they wouldn't even consider it. And when we showed up to Bonneville the first year, we had to demonstrate. They set up a temporary course away from everybody. We had to demonstrate how I could ride, ride the bike, that Patrick could remotely shut it off. If the motorcycle went 20 feet right or left, mm -hmm. it would automatically shut off. When they went through the finish line, it would shut off. And they put an independent rider on there from Germany to verify all this. And that's the only way that we were allowed to race. It was not an easy um, deal. You know, um, this was something built in a small shop at home. This is not <laughs> a rich man that wrote a check to an engineering firm and said, build me this from finished, call me. I'm the one in a secure remote airstrip in North Alabama. We did a little <laughs> testing and I'm the run that ran off the runway, you know, and, and was testing it. But, uh, we made it happen. You know, I got, I've always had a life motto. You can make excuses to make it happen. And, uh, through blessing, a lot of support, we made it happen. And so in 13, I become the first blind man. I returned in 14 and set my FIM class record with no exemptions for blindness, because from the time the official tells the team, the course is clear, I'm ready to go. Jennifer tells my headset course is mine all the way down the track to uh, go through the finish line and bring the bike to complete stop. Nobody helps me. So I, I have a record against sighted people. 62.05 uh, miles per hour is what my official FIM record is now. And, you know, we set example that, that this could be done. Remarkable. We'll come back. We'll continue. Uh, we're gonna. Hey, it, it only gets more remarkable with, with Dan mm -hmm. Parker when Rick and Bubba University, the podcast, continues. Bubba, we love to talk about Tommy John. Uh, I, I I have my Tommy John zone as we as we're speaking right now. Well, Rick, it means you're comfortable. I'm very comfortable. And Tommy John's uh, hammock pouch underwear. Th this is designed uh, for men in the way that we are made. Too many times, men have been asked to take some really uncomfortable underwear, put them in a drawer somewhere, and by golly, that's your underwear for life. <laughs> uh, but Tommy John changed that. Uh, you're much more comfortable, which means you can do everything better. Uh, they've got all kinds of comfort innovations, and once you've tried Tommy John underwear, you will never go back to whatever you were wearing before. So here's, here's some examples. An air mesh uh, interior hammock 
moisture-wicking fabric four times the stretch of competing brands. The legs never ride up. Tommy John underwear comes with a non-rolling waistband for a perfect fit. Uh, that's why Tommy John does not have customers. They have fanatics. Uh, they, uh, look, the fanatics like us call Tommy John's hammock pouch one of life's greatest inventions. 17 million pairs have been sold across America. Why don't you add to that list by getting yours right now? Shipping and returns are free because every pair is backed by Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or it's free guarantee. You ready to make the move? Let's do it now. Uh, this is their anniversary month, so they're, they're, try, try them for the first time, or if you're a longtime fan like us, go get another pair. You get 25% off site-wide right now at TommyJohn.com slash RickBubba. That's TommyJohn.com slash RickBubba for 25% off TommyJohn.com slash RickBubba. See the site for all the details. Rick and Bubba University, the podcast, we are back uh, Dan Parker is our guest. Um, he's he's decided that uh, he will go and he will not let the loss of his eyesight after a horrible crash stop him. He's gone to Bonneville. He has now set a record on a motorcycle, uh, even competing with people who um, who have sight. And then we get to the next goal that is set. I well, mean, Rick, let me let me ask one more question okay. of a technical okay. nature to Dan. I, Dan, I know it's amazing to me. The driving is amazing, but I know being a builder and a machinist uh, that you, you've you always built your vehicles, the fact that you're still able to do that yeah, uh, w- without your vision now is maybe more amazing than the driving on a lot of fronts. But let me ask you this. Technically, when you're, you're you're trying to steer, tell us about the system, how it warns you to, to move back the other way and how you sense that and, and make the adjustments. Okay. So the officials give us access to the course. We plot the, the center line at the very beginning and the very end. So that gives me a theoretical path. Once I start off, if I go one foot right or left, I get a tone in that ear. So if I'm going to the right, I get a tone and it increases as I further off center, I go like, do, do, do. Mm-hmm. Well, if I go 20 feet right or left, it'll shut off the car motorcycle for safety. But if the tone is to the right and it's constant, then I know I'm going straight. I'm just a little right. And then I can start sneaking it back in on center to make sure, mm. you know, I don't have to be on perfect center. I just got a path. Right. I need to stay within that window. On the motorcycle, when I went to the finish line, it would automatically shut off the bike then I would bring it to a stop. The computer will shut off the bike if it loses Wi-Fi signal, GPS signal, or if the hard drive overheats. And then Patrick and the team would be in the chase van, and if they saw a fire or something, they could right. remotely shut it off also. And I knew if it kicked in remotely shut off to bring it to stop immediately and get off. You know, And we had two-way communication also. So um, a lot of fail-safes and safety built into it. Um, that we did before the, you know, the uh, racing organization asked us for anything because we wanted to be safe up front. And there again, try to be professional. Right. And you know, that I, I got a quote, I'm not a blind man trying to race. I'm a racer that went blind. There you go. So think thinking of it as a racer, I wanted to have all the safety and aspects built into it up front. So Dan on that, uh, what I would call a, 
positive action link or positive action control, is it, uh, is it solely based on GPS? Is that how it senses where you are to stay in that window that you're wanting to stay in? For the motorcycle, yes. For the car, it's way more sophisticated. Uh, uh, because the motorcycle, we really knew the maximum speed would be 75-ish miles an hour. Right. Um, you know, so for the, the motorcycle, GPS only was good enough to do what we wanted to do. But we had to totally step up the game later. Yeah, so you, you go on to graduate in 2015. Uh, you graduated the Louisiana Center for the Blind. That's a, that was a nine-month program uh, by the National Federation of the Blind, and, and they, they helped sponsor the motorcycle, too. This was a big step, too, to kind of get you prepared, take another step in life. And, you, and ultimately, like you're saying, you're, you know, we'll tell you about as we end this, but you, you're, you're doing your dream job now. Is this, was this steps to try to get ready to, to be prepared for what was going to be next? Well, yes, because, you know, early on, I realized the unemployment rate for the blind is 70 percent in America and 99 percent worldwide. So I knew I needed skills if I was going to be able to get a job. You know, if I can't navigate the building or wherever my workplace is, nobody's going to hire you. So they taught me cane travel, computer skills and home economics. And they teach two hours of wood shop not as an employment skill, but as a confidence builder. You know, if you can run a radial arm saw yeah. with your mm-hmm. finger one inch back blade, you got, you know, build a little confidence. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so it was life-changing, you know, attending LCB and graduating um, to keep moving forward in life. So now we move to the world record uh, and, and preparation from, from that. So tell us the, the, the whole process. You told Bubba that an automobile, a car was going to be a – a lot more complicated. Um, so uh, in 2017, uh, you, you set out to rescue a 2008 Corvette, uh, and, and this led to you actually, um, I think, appearing on, if I'm not mistaken, on Jay Leno's uh, uh, garage show, right? Um, yeah. and, uh, and, and so talk about the process of us working our way to, to the world record. You know, as a racer, I knew there's one more fruit hanging on the tree, the Guinness record, the world's fastest blind man was held by Mike Newman in England at 200.51 miles per hour. So in 08, I sold my last possession. I had a van and I bought a, I'm sorry, not 08, in 17, I bought a 08 Corvette with that money. I sold the van and it was a flood salvage car, no motor, no interior. And to say she was an ugly duckling (laughs) would be an understatement. It was, it had a rough life, but, uh, so friends, took me to Oklahoma city and back and we brought it home and just put the word out what I wanted to do. And I started having, you know, a friend of mine, a little art, little art race cars in Dothan came up several weekends in a row and installed the roll cage. The roll cage kit was donated. And I'm basically a one man social media band and try to do all my, you know, uh, marketing. And I was able to get a lot of help, corporate help and, Two years later, the car was starting to take shape. And in the fall of 2019, the producer of Jay Leno's Garage heard about my story and reached out, wanted me to be on one of the episodes. The car wasn't close to finish. I didn't have the motor finished. But that, when they gave me the commitment, allowed me to get some corporate sponsors to get it finished in time for the February filming at the Spaceport, New Mexico. It was an East Coast Timing Association event, invite only. And when we rolled into Spaceport, 
the car had never been a quarter mile under its own power, much less I'd never driven it. And uh, we had some problems. Saturday, we were testing. And end of the day, Saturday, the director of operations, Chris Lopez, came up to us. And he's like, how y'all looking? And Jimmy, my crew chief, said, not good. And he said, what do y'all need? He said, we just need time. You know, they're fixing to shut up. You know, roll up the sidewalk. We're here for the day. He says, stay here all night. Do what you need to do. He wow. says, we got fire and rescue that stay here all night. So you got my permission. So with my brain injury, I have to rest some. So Jimmy told me to go sit in the truck while Patrick reprogrammed the guidance system. Some of the problems we were doing, they went and tested about 1230 in the middle of the night. They woke me up. I said, come on, let's go. We went on the runway and at 230 in the morning, I went 116 miles an hour with rental cars right beside it. The car doesn't have headlights. There's no lights on the runway. And we, we were out running the rental cars too fast. We said, we, we done pushed our luck. So we got a, we, Went back to hotel, which is an hour drive each way. Got about an hour sleep and a shower and come back. And we knew first thing Sunday morning was filming Leno. It was, you know, it was showtime then, you know. And um, so my first full pass the car was filming for Leno. And as fast I'd been was 116 the night before. And um, I went 153.8 hey. filming for Leno. And so at that point, that made me the fastest blind man in America and the first blind man to run 150 miles an hour, no human assistance. All right. And we, we want to come back. Let's finish this up and, 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 and what, and, and, and then we'll, we'll wrap up this edition, but stay with us more with Dan coming up when Rick and Bubba university, the podcast continues. All right. So, wow. Now we're on Leno. Dan Parker's our guest. You now have become the fastest blind man in America, right? Is that, that's where we are now. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and so then, then what's the next step that you're ready to take? Well, then COVID hit, mm. so everything, you know, stopped racing. Uh, some of my sponsors had to pull out, obviously, for financial, you know, mm. obligations to their employees, which is number one, totally understandable. Right. And in the fall of 2020, President Rick Abono from the National Federation of Blind reached out to me and asked me if I wanted to attempt the Guinness record in 2021 for the 10-year anniversary of the Blind Driver Challenge. So we set out to do that. I practiced, I went to an East Coast Time Association event in Arkansas in May, and it was just a failure. I made two attempts for runs. They were both aborted. Came home, I was defeated, and I knew I had to have a way to practice. So I put a post on social media looking for just a used, cheap 90s Corvette. So it has similar handling characteristics as the race car, decent amount of horsepower, and um, bought one. We built a second guidance system. And we would go to Faint City Drag Strip and practice and practice and practice. And then um, we were supposed to attempt the record in November of 2021. Then Delta ramped up. We had to postpone it till March. We rolled in a spaceport March 29th and had a new motor, new transmission, um, just all kinds of stuff. It had to be sorted out. And we had two days of just horrible winds, 40 to 50 miles an hour winds. And the practice car... I could get up to 115, 20 miles an hour and just cruise for a mile and stay with an eight foot window on a 200 foot wide airstrip with a 50 mile an hour crosswind. So I knew I could do it, but we were just struggling with the car. And on the last day, March 31st, exactly 10 years to the date of the wreck. Wow. I made a shakedown pass at lunchtime, shortly after lunchtime, I made a 205 miles an hour pass and the car still, I was having to fight it too much. So we 
We went to the pits. I made some shock adjustment calls, some stuff on the steering. Went back out there about 3.34 o'clock. And on my first record attempt run, I went 210 miles an hour. And the way Guinness works is you have to make a pass one way. Within one hour, you have to turn around and make it the other way. Mm. So if the wind helps you one way, it hurts you the other. Average out. On my return run, I went 212. So I'm now the fit, fastest blind man in the world with a record of 211.043 miles an hour. And I'm the only blind man in the world that's ever raced with no human assistance. And um, so I hold the Guinness record. The way it's classified is, is the world's fastest person driving blindfolded. So <laughs> I'm racing against my sighted peers. You know, if somebody wanted to try it. And, uh, um, wow. you know, and part of this project is to prove to the world that if the blind is given an accessible world, we can compete in the job site, classroom, or the racetrack, you know? And uh, so the story is so much more bigger than just that 211 miles an hour, you know, footnote on the Guinness World Record title. You know, it's it has far re- more reaching possibilities than just that record. And Dan, while all this is going on, you had time for a proposal. <laughs> yeah, on the Steve Harvey show. <laughs> yeah, so if anybody wants to go to YouTube and search uh, Steve Harvey Blind Man Proposes, um, I, I got introduced to OrCam. It's a device that takes a picture of anything printed and it reads it out loud. It's an amazing piece of technology. And they asked me if I wanted to go on the Steve Harvey show and demonstrate it. And I was already, you know, knowing I wanted to marry Jennifer. I ne- needed to propose to her. And I, I told the people OrCam, I said, I think I might know how to make this show a little extra. And uh, so they were all excited to say the least. Jennifer had no idea. But yeah, go to YouTube, Steve Harvey, Blind Man Proposes. Yeah, I will so, give you a, a tissue warning. People's yeah. allergies have been known to act up. Yeah, it, it's <laughs> it's an incredible deal. And, and you know, because you can tell she doesn't see it coming. And, and the fact you, 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 you use that. Now, did Steve know about it? Did you let them know you were going to do yeah, it? Every, everybody knew but her. <laughs> okay, yeah. Because, by the way, I was looking at that technology. It, it, like, he turned his head, and, and immediately, he, if he had the audio on it, it says, Jennifer. So it helps him to know, like, if he's looking around in the room, mm-hmm. who's there and all that, and, and the way the, the the text feature operates. It really is amazing technology. It is. It is. And now I will tell you this, like Greg would say, and that will bring a tear to a glass eye. Yeah. But, but do you say yeah. that when you have a blind man? Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know. Yeah, but it's, it, <laughs> it, it's, it's very moving. And uh, uh, with about uh, three minutes left, tell everybody, I mean, you, you're in your dream job. You, you, you are working. You are productive. And you're doing what you love. Yes, yeah, so I, I got a job at our local high school. Um, sadly, skilled trade education has fallen away in America. When I was in high school, we had five schools in Columbus that taught machine shop. Now there's only five in the state of Georgia. So I was a part-time parapro teaching machine shop at a side of high school, and I got it because OrCam helped me. And um, since then, sadly, I've had to quit because of all the side effects of my traumatic brain injury. But now – I hand machine custom aluminum ink pens at home and sell them on my website, theblindmachinist.com. And I ship them all around the world. So I can work when I'm you know, able to, and if I'm having a bad day with headaches, I can stay home and rest. And uh, I have a full machine shop in my backyard. I have audio, uh, my digital readout, Patrick, again, the engineer built the guidance system. He makes it where it talks to me. I have calipers. I have a talk box. I push a button. It, it speaks out loud the measurement to me. So uh, I'm hands-on on all this. Dan, I know you've been a tremendous uh, 
example and motivator for yeah. the visually impaired, but uh, you, you're just a great motivation for anybody. And uh, you, what you've accomplished uh, is amazing, and what you've accomplished, the way you've had to do it is even more amazing. And uh, I just congratulate you for that. That's uh, It's an amazing story, and, and you're still writing chapters in the book. And you've made I Bubba and I, it. yeah, you've motivated many, but you've made Bubba and I feel like losers. Yeah, yeah, we feel kind of bad now. <laughs> well, I'm sorry about that. I appreciate the kind words. You know, I hope one day to use my story as an inspirational speaker, you know, yeah. and I tell people it's amazing what you can accomplish when you take quitting off the table. And I'm, I'm an example of that. You know, when I took quitting off the table, you know, my life turned around and I've been able to accomplish all this with a lot of support and blessings. Well, I'm with Bubba. I I, I think if uh, those, and we, we certainly, if, if I can help in any way, I can introduce you to some people that book speakers because uh, I think you would uh, would be fantastic. If you want to go to theblindmachinist.com, just go there directly. You can see everything that he's walking about, talking about. And also blinddriverchallenge.org is also another uh, website that you can find out more about uh, the incredible story. That is and continues, like you said, Bubba, uh, to be Dan Parker. So, Dan, thank you so much uh, for taking time to be with us today. Uh, didn't realize that we had so many things in common, uh, but uh, your story has uh, inspired so many people, and I appreciate you taking time to uh, to be with us today. And uh, and so t- tell Jennifer we said hello. She is definitely a brave woman, I'll tell you that. <laughs> And thank you, Dan Parker. And thanks to all of you for being with us on this edition of Rick and Bubba University, the podcast.